Is that true? I think it's true. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, God, gardening, church, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. I'm Cody Stopper. And this is Craig Morton. On this podcast, we talk to writers, teachers, activists, and we seek some wisdom. And as always, we are allergic to big words. But not some big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. All right. Hello, Cody. Hey. I'm very happy this morning today. You're very happy this morning. What's what's got you all happy? <laughs> so this may be very shallow, but my favorite <laughs> my favorite movie of the year won seven awards at the Oscars. Really? That's yep. pretty good. Including best film, best director, best actor, or, or best actress in the leading role, best supporting actress. And uh, that's supporting actor. So, yeah. So eventually I have to see that movie. There's a couple of movies. There's so, so many good. movies to see. But I've had my philosophy students asking all kinds of questions about physics, quarks, yeah. quantum mechanics. Yeah. I think because they've been watching, you know, everything uh, everywhere all at once. And it's kind of in their in their mind, mm-hmm. which has taken over the imagination of these students. In the past, it was always they wanted to talk about the Matrix movies. Mm. Um, and so now they've got a new movie to to like yeah. get them get them thinking. So I, I need I'm playing catch up to my students. So eventually I got to learn everything I can about quantum mechanics. And then <laughs> I can jump in to watch that movie. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't understand it. Interstellar was a, another movie that did it really well. Um, I haven't seen the Marvel movie, but uh, apparently Doctor Strange and the whatever. And uh, well, yeah, the Doctor Strange movies are always playing around with multiple multiverses mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So. Oh, and the multiverse. Hey, well, there we go. So we've got we've got our um, our uh, randomly programmed uh, icebreaker question, and it kind of fits along, I think, right. with what you had on Facebook this last week. Mm hmm. Uh, what was it? Random question number five, was it? Yeah. Pointless poll. I, 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 pointless poll. Yeah. I don't really know how you number those, actually. For the year. Number five for the year. <laughs> okay. So the question is, um, if you had a time machine, what year would you travel to? And your question was, mm-hmm. would you rather travel forward or backward in time? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What year and I, and I gave you to? just a nonsensical answer to that one. So yeah, yeah, you did. That made sense to me. Well, I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I don't know what year I would pick. What year would you pick? Oh, can you hear music playing? Mm-hmm. That's that's our that's our timer telling us we should go on to the next activity. Well, you're <laughs> supposed to send it to me. I was like, where where? How do I pause this thing? Right, you hit next. If I do, we'll 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 jump into the next thing. (laughs) 
All right. Well, that was that was short. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're trying to keep this thing rolling and it's got us on a timer. So so would, would you rather go... go forward or backward? Oh boy. I think I think I'd rather go forward. And I'd rather go forward because boy, honestly, truth truthfully, I don't care to go either forward or backward. Well, yeah. So my answer to you was if I went, if I went, if I was backwards going forward, would I still, where, you know, would I go, <laughs> where, would I stay where I am? Um, yeah. But the, I think the other part of it is I, I really like convenience. I don't want to go back in time because like there's no showers, toilets, you know, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Good point. And in the future, I suppose that stuff's only going to get better. Mm. Maybe. Yeah. Could get but, worse. Yeah. So maybe it's just out of sense of hygiene. I kind of like the present <laughs> or the future. Mm, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Although somebody did say, I liked how they put it. They said, well, because we live in a sense, always going into the future, <laughs> you know, every moment, right. he already has a sense of what it's like to travel forward into the future. <laughs> Whoa, that's kind of mm-hmm. so he would try, in some ways. Try, he would try going back is how he answered it. But well, and, and then we always carry the past with us. So the past mm-hmm. is already right there at our fingertips. That's or in our, true. In our minds. That's true. Okay. There All we right. go. So <laughs> we can we can jump into some of those big questions uh, a little bit later, I suppose. Sure. But so uh, this, yeah, there's a, in fact, uh, we have an interview uh, with Angela Danker in this episode. Second time guest. Actually, I think it's the third. Oh, you're right. I think you're right. Yeah. This is the third. Yeah. Ooh. yeah. Do so, we have any prizes is, for third time guests? I don't know. She needs a coat or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it one of the one of the things that one of the resources she has on her Substack is a letter or a, you know a, a newsletter that she sends out on Friday that's titled "This Week in, Nas- in Christian Nationalism." <laughs> it's just, you know, updating everything every week. And I was kind of thinking about that when I was thinking about some of the things uh, to discuss in this kind of lead in and, you know, keeping, you know, the Christian nationalism stuff up, up on, uh, you know, in the conversation. And it had to do with this last week. I listened to two different podcasts with a fellow by the name of, I can't remember if it's uh, Lerone or Leron, or I'm not even sure how to sp- pronounce his first name, L-E-R-O-N-E, Leron, Leron, Leron. It's not a familiar name to me, no. but he's a professor. So it might be easy just to call him Dr. Martin. There you go. And he had a really interesting uh, piece of research that he had completed in for his book, the gospel of J Edgar Hoover. Ooh. And it was just mind blowing. I think it was first on um, one of the um, New York public radio station programs. It might've been through line where they take a historical theme and carry it through. Um, and, but uh, then he was also on um, another podcast. I'll need to put those in the show notes. If I can remember where I heard the second one, second interview with him. But what he did is he, he wanted to find out who are some of the Christian leaders that the FBI had files on because people were aware that he had files on Martin Luther King. Right. This research, they didn't want to release. And so he sued the FBI and won 
to get information released. And some of the things that he discovered were things that weren't really hidden, but he hadn't really known where to look for them. And one of the really interesting things, and you can find this if you go to Christianity Today and look up its archives, but uh, J. Edgar Hoover in the 50s and 60s had regular articles in a column in Christianity Today. Mm, oh, wow. And, and you know, Christianity Today at its outset was, you know, strongly connected to the, the revivalist movements that were going on with, with um, you know, Billy Graham. Um, it had to do with kind of a, I wouldn't say terribly conservative, but kind of an evangelical mainstream apologetic trying to defend, you know, why Christianity you know, from from kind of an emerging modernist perspective, kind of replay of the 1920s between modernists and fundamentalists. And J. Edgar Hoover started having, he had a speech writer, I guess, or a, a writer who would work with him and would fill out these, these, um, these column articles, which were all about, you know, fearing the red menace, and the, right. what a good Christian does is, you know, work with the government and mm. and <laughs> all this all this stuff that was going out. And the, the encouragement was for preachers to read these and to share them with their congregations. And so that the the you know federal government was actually providing input for congregational formation. Right. Isn't that crazy? Which just is crazy. <laughs> Yet on the uh, within the FBI, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was also requiring participation in chapels oh wow and so that an fbi agent would you know be a part of this uh one of the things that dr martin notices also in his research is the lack of racial diversity yeah. racial and ethnic you know uh, there were it was basically a bunch of white uh, <clears throat> uh individuals who were um, there were Catholic uh, uh, and other Christians, but there was a real limit on people of color and other religions. And the only religion for the FBI was Christian. Uh, and it was really, really pushing that theme. And and then I thought, well, okay, that was the past. You know, that I'm sure things like sure, that don't happen no, anymore. No we've, we've learned our lessons. <laughs> and then there was a wonderful article called Prince of Peace, question mark. Christian nationalists pushed Jesus as military leader. And this article was written in a in a magazine or an online magazine called Crooks and Liars. And what it is, is a kind of a left-leaning progressive um, curation of articles from all over uh, the all over the press. So a variety of publications. And what was discovered was that there's an organization that is using uh, a, a workshop on Jesus as a military leader and making it required for uh, folks in the military to attend this. And it was a, the, 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 um, the encouragement was that everybody needed to go learn about Jesus, even if you're not a Christian, because he had essential teachings that were helpful for military training and for military leadership. And it was like, oh, you just need to think of him as a G as Jesus as a military leader, not yeah. as Jesus, the Son of God. Wow, wow! You know and, what this makes so, me think of is uh, 
Ray Vander, Ray Vanderland used to talk about. Do you remember him, Ray Vanderland? No. Uh-uh. So he was. Uh, he did the um, that the world may know series. Mm. You know, based mm-hmm. in the yeah the uh, really um, rooted in Hebrew archaeology study. You know, stuff like that. And he talked right. about how the wilderness experience for the Israelites were a way for them to shake themselves out of empire thinking because that's what they'd been trapped in for so long and instead to start a a learning shalom way of being you know trusting and yeah anyway that made me think of that immediately like the christian church being enraptured by empire and not shalom and not even impacting this presentation of jesus you know yeah and, and, and in fact in thinking about shalom really kind of leads into a portion of what our, our interview with angela denker speaks about she talks about that that separation of the um gospel of um of grace and being yep. a servant as yep. opposed to this gospel of glory yeah and this theology yep. of glory Oof. but what was interesting is there's there is an organization called the military christian national uh, let's see what no that's the wrong name uh, let me find it again. Um, it is called the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the Military Religious Freedom Foundation has been uh, working with uh, groups, legal groups, to kind of take the Christian nationalist or even the the enforcement of any kind of religious ideal out of the military. And they have a number of different uh, projects that they've been working on, which was kind of interesting to to see. And so I just uh, I have I think I have the link for the show notes for the Military Religious Freedom Foundation, but they've been incredibly active at finding these places where a form of Christianity, a form of Christianity that strongly enforces this idea of a militaristic uh, Jesus. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, it, it's like, well, that, that problem with J. Edgar Hoover isn't limited to J. Edgar Hoover. Nope. It kind of found a way to to stay in there. And the question is, do do religious organizations really want this? Do churches want this? Do Christians want this? And uh, there are some parachurch organizations that are uh, supporting this kind of a thing. But, um, you know, it's just, it's um, it's a concern that's come up in a couple of different ways. When the insurrection took place, there was a large number of folks who did, who are part of veteran organizations and even active or reserve military who are participants in the insurrection on January 6th. Yep. And yep. so the concern is, is the military a place where these kinds of ideas might find a home? Oof. And and myself as a pacifist, non-participatory, you know, non-participating in military and all that kind of thing, this is unfamiliar territory yep. you know, for me. Uh, but it does seem like, at the very least, um, religious groups should not be a part of the military outside of you know simple chaplaincy kind of kind of roles. <sighs> wow, yeah, how, yeah, the, both in the military and in the um, you know police community. Just how many folks? align with yeah white christian nationalism is well yeah i've mentioned it before the uh, rage against the machine song where it has the chorus you know some of those who have uh what is it wear badges are the same who burn crosses yep um 
And that was that was 20 years ago. That was 20 <laughs> more. 25? Okay. I can't remember something like that. Yeah. Yeah, they, they saw it coming. Oh, yeah. Well, it was already going on, I think. It was already going Must on. Must have been. That's right. Oh, so. Wow. But that's just something, you know, thinking about, you know, this this gospel of J. Edgar Hoover. It's a, definitely a book that I'd like to be able to get. But um, these kinds of trends, uh, at least in the military and perhaps other places in the government, you know, continue to take place, continue to happen. My hunch is these are the same pressures that that are happening at the school board level. Yeah. Um, the you know, for us, it has to do with our, our uh, city library going through this. Oh, it's, yeah. It's this pressure of Christian nationalists at the local level. So that is that's that's the world we live in. That's where we are. Yeah. So who the redefinition yeah. too, redefining terms, you know, like I think in throughout the well, not the majority of Christian history anymore, but in the original <laughs> way back when, you know, uh just like you were talking about with Angela Decker, grace versus glory, just redefining terms. We could still be using the same exact language, and yet we mean so many different things. Yeah, you and know? that's you know one of the things that I try to teach my students when we're taught when when either in philosophy or ethics or you know some kind of religious connection, usually uh, Christian, comes up. I've been trying to say this is not Christian perspective. Cause that's just claiming too much. So I'm labeling it as a Christendom perspective. Yeah, there you go. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, that means it had to do with uh, a way of molding and shaping society during a period of time where church and state were united. Mm. And yeah, that doesn't really reflect, reflect, I would say even the orthodoxy oh. of, of Christianity. You know what else this discussion made me think about? So earlier this week, I was listening to a, um, a recording of of noam chomsky from like oh yeah yeah like 50 years ago or something like that okay. so right in the middle of uh cold war stuff and he was being asked the difference between an authoritarian state and a democratic state how they i don't know what the exact definition they were using but how they essentially control the crowds and he said, well, in a truly authoritarian state or a totalitarian state, and he was he wanted us to know there is no true, fully totalitarian state, you know, yet, even hmm. not yet. But uh, <laughs> but he said that in those states, you know, they are more bent on controlling action. So they honestly don't care what you believe or, or think. Um what matters is the action. Do what we ask you to do. Think whatever you want. We don't care. Right. But just do the action. The action is what matters. And he said that in a democratic state, and he was saying the like the American, you know, American country, government, former governor, whatever. He said that uh, here we can't control a democratic state cannot control action. So what's left to them is to try and control your thoughts and how you think. And so he yeah. pointed to just what you're talking about messaging, yep. you know, the yep. getting the message to the pastors to give to their churches, the commercials, you know, the, the employ of some of the world's best um, human behavioralists are employed yep. in the field of marketing, you know, commercial, you know, uh, basically 
advertising for private corporations, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. That, that goes back to one of the points in our last conversation, um, two weeks ago, uh, mentioning the book, the flag and the cross by, um, Gorski and Perry, where they talk about this kind of triumvirate of, of order control and violence. Yep. You know, it's like certain things you can org or, you know, you can order certain things you can control certain things yeah. and that's all around behavior. Yep. Uh, but when those begin to fall aside, then it has to be enforced with some kind of violence, yep. which is a little fright, a little bit frightening that the military <laughs> is right. one of these places that's getting infiltrated. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Scary. So yeah, it is, Ooh. it is kind of disturbing. <sighs> so interview. Angela Danker. Yeah. So Angela Danker. And one of the things that we, we tried to do in this interview, she she had produced a book at the beginning of the Trump administration about red straight Christians and and how did Christians um you know experience that period of time in history, say 2015, 2016, and and then why did they make these choices? And she interviews people all across the country. And it's a really interesting book on different regions and and different uh, expressions of support for, you know, kind of a, the, the Trumpist uh, worldview. Yep. Then at the end of the Trump administration, she, she re revised the book and some of the most uh, um, penetrating, I would say, and personal revisions are in the intro and conclusion. And so it's the beginning and the end of the book. And she still goes through these different, uh, experiences, you know, across the country through the bulk of the body of the book. But we focused a bit more in our conversation on the beginning and the end of this book, where she reflects on her personal experience as a pastor. You know, how do you respond as a pastor to Christian nationalism? And in this conversation, she she um, responds to that largely by talking about, well, what does the pastor need to do in one's own pastoral identity? How do you remain Kind of that pastor person, right? Uh, when you have when you have a variety of groups that you end up serving, right? And so she she it, even though she's a sports writer, journalist, uh, yeah, yeah, she's uh, all these wonderful things. She speaks in this um, interview as a pastor, and I think it's really really interesting perspective that she brings. I love it. Good afternoon, Angela. So this is the third time that you get to be a part of our All That's Holy Blue Collar podcast. And one of the things we're doing different this time is we're focusing more thematically on responses to white Christian nationalism. And uh, you're you're uh, one of the voices that I think is important in this conversation. Uh, several years ago, you wrote a book called Red State Christians. Uh, a journey into white Christian nationalism, the wreckage and the wreckage it leaves behind. It's uh, was a fantastic read several years ago, and then you updated it with um, some really, I think, personal reflections that really speak to you, uh, speak speak from your heart as a pastoring person, um, and also uh, very close uh, personal reflections on on things that happened within your family and connecting that to the larger movements. So Angela is a a pastor, a Lutheran pastor. She is also a sports journalist or a journalist. I'll say a journalist, but it's sports journalism where I first uh, discovered uh, your writing. I, it wasn't because you were writing stuff on politics and culture. It was something on Colin Kaepernick, you know, yeah. 
And, and as a sports geek, it was like, oh, hey, cool. She's also a pastor. Awesome. Um, and so uh, you're, you're a journalist, you're a writer, you're a speaker, you're a substitute teacher, soon to be. And, uh, and, uh, but it's largely in that role as a, as a Lutheran pastor that I want to focus our conversations today. Uh, is there any other uh, ways that you want to kind of introduce yourself, uh, <laughs> the things that I skipped that are no. crucial? I think you you got most of it, although uh, maybe we should say I have, I have two kids too. <laughs> I, I figured, yeah, I think that's pretty crucial. Yeah. So um, one of the things that um, we're trying to do with this series is to find different, um, oh, kind of those, those um, perspectives, different perspectives on dealing with Christian nationalism, white Christian nationalism. And in many ways, even that's redundant to say white Christian because the white is really about whiteness, I suppose. And as we do that, we're asking different people to say, well, how do you use that term? What do you mean when, or how do you interpret that phrase, white Christian nationalism? And so as we jump into that, I think we'll begin with that kind of maybe a, a definition. How do you, how, how would you say or define um, what white Christian nationalism is? Yeah, well, um, I've thought about this a lot because there's, especially, you know, leading up to the 2022 midterms, I felt like Christian nationalism was really like at a peak point in the news and there was more coverage of it, more discussion of it, some of it around the January 6th uh, hearing as well, hearings as well. But I felt like what I really wanted to bring into the conversation that I didn't see enough of was the theological background of Christian nationalism and how the way in which Americans view God influences their ascent to Christian nationalism, the temptation to Christian nationalism. Uh, so I think that that's a really important complement to you know the work of religious sociologists, the work of historians, the work of psychologists. Uh, so that's what I want to bring to the conversation. Uh, and as you know, I've been one of my big uh, focus areas right now is I'm writing on Substack. Uh, so it's just AngelaDenker.substack.com. Uh, and every week on Friday, I do a news post. And part of that post, I do kind of a, a little section called This Week in Christian Nationalism and Religious Extremism. And every week I share this definition again, which is that in one sentence, Christian nationalism is a version of the idolatrous theology of glory which replaces the genuine worship of God with worship of, uh, of a particular vision of America, often rooted in a revisionist history of white people in the 1950s before the civil rights movement or the women's movement. Christian nationalism supports a violent takeover of government and the imposition of fundamentalist Christian beliefs on all people. Christian nationalism relies on a theological argument that equates American military sacrifice with Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It suggests that Christians are entitled to wealth and power in contrast to Jesus' theology of the cross, which reminds Christians that they too have to carry their cross just as our crucified Savior did. So that's that. that yeah, I, and I do love that definition because uh, it touches on so many different uh, aspects. And and as a pastoring person, you end up, uh, some of those terms are are loaded with uh, rich content that like there's, there's, a mul there's, there's multitudes of sermons just in that in that description. I think part of that is uh, you, you bring up theology of glory versus theology of cross of the cross. Yeah. And um, what, what made you 
uh, orient the beginning of that definition toward that uh, identification of this theology of glory? Well, I think one of the ways in which the dialogue around Christian nationalism gets lost in the U.S. is when we um, we lose its historical context and we lose its theological context. And so when people hear about white Christian nationalism, often what our brains do, because we have so much information coming in, is we're going to try to put it into a category and we're going to try to understand it in a category in which we understand other stories. And so the temptation is to say, well, this is a liberal thing. And it's a liberal way for Democrats to attack Republicans. Uh, and so that situates Christian nationalism within this moment in America. Um, so what I always wanna do is take a step away from that and say, Christian nationalism is part of a larger phenomenon that is not based in America. It's much bigger than America. Um, and it's also, you know, with, with a past. Um, we can look back to the Crusades as a time when Christians who were so thirsty for power and for control, uh, you know, took on violence and went into the Middle East in order to have complete European hegemony over over Muslims, to have Christian hegemony even over Jewish people who were there. Um, and so we just kind of see this cropping up again and again. And I think if we only think about it in partisan terms, in American terms, we lose the ability to understand um, that that just as like in the night in the early 2000s, we wanted to speak out against radical Islamic terrorism in the same way religious fundamentalism and Christianity shares many of the same characteristics with other religious fundamentalist groups. And I think we lose that ability if we, again, make this into a partisan issue, which it really it can't be in order for us to actually combat it. So it's it's almost rephrasing red state Christians as uh, theology of glory Christians. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, we I, all are at time or another. Like we all love the theology of glory. I want the theology yeah. of glory. We all want it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, both of us are jocks. We both love athletics, and <laughs> it, you know, glory. nobody wants to go out there and be the you know follow the theology of the cross when they're out there trying to win a race. You know, you want to get yeah. the prize. You don't want to get. Share the glory, hopefully. But if you're right. a track athlete, you get it by yourself if you win. You know, it's kind of um, so glory. I mean, glory is a big theme in American culture, Western culture. Right, right. No, I was going to say. I think maybe the only sport that really might like theology of the cross are like wrestlers. <laughs> <laughs> There's no glory one way or the other. Is that it? <laughs> so they like um, too. But the the so putting it through that 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 lens it 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 makes it difficult in some ways then to say well i mean so theology of the cross what does what does the cross or or uh, i want to say self sacrifice but servanthood what you can't have a country with that right mm -hmm. i mean you can't just lay down and i mean is is that probably why a national conversation moves towards glory is because it's a sense of we need to hold this it's this this institution we call a nation together. It's almost more of a defensive posture. I don't know. I mean, I think that um, 
the call to service, you know, has certainly been a powerful part of American history. If we look at, you know, World War II and again, you know, that's that's a loaded way to look at it, right? Because you're doing service into violence. But at the same time, the way culturally Americans have responded to sacrifice in order to care for one another at different points in our history, there have been positive examples of that. And so I don't want to entirely yeah. lose sight of that. Um, but I think it, it it's, a, it's especially an attractive message when we're in a culture like we are right now in America, where there's a lot of people struggling financially. There's a lot of people who are kind of feel like they're hanging on. Um, but we all have access to see those who have so much more wealth and power than us through social media. There's been all this sort of, you know, lying authenticity or lying relationship with very wealthy people. Um, so I think that that heightens this sense that I got to get more, I got to get more, I got to, grab what I can. And I think that makes Christian nationalism, prosperity gospel, it's another way to talk about it, mm -hmm. um, really attractive. And really what Christian nationalism does, in addition to like theology of glory or prosperity gospel that are sort of straight just about, about wealth or affluence, is Christian nationalism does bring that, that violent undertone into it. And it does that by imbuing the national military with a sense of godly purpose which has certainly right. been done, you know, by all sorts of different American leaders. It, and it, that seems one of those, that, that aspect of, yeah, imbuing that, um, that character onto violence, military and other violence, uh, whether it be militias or other, other kind of actors. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and those have become the symbols that are seen on the Christian symbols that were part of J6. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I mean, uh, so many of the um, oh the 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 white field with the red cross the, of the Crusaders. The um, oh I can't remember the name of the the Latin description of that, but mm -hmm. I mean that was that was all apparent that this is a, a, it is a crusade. Yeah, it 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 is moving that way. One of the things I've wondered about, and I think about it partly out of your descriptions of where you live, and then where you where you were serving the congregation in which you were. Uh, that you were leading just up till about two weeks ago, I think, two or three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. You left an urban community and then drove to a rural community. And it made me think, uh, you're probably familiar with the book, The Big Sort. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it was one of the first things I read probably 20 years ago that began describing this red-blue separation that was going on. And you know, part of the th thought was that, you know, initially it was probably... You know, red and blue were not um, descriptors for um, subsections of states, not necessarily communities, towns, counties. You know, maybe a state was red. Mm -hmm. But then that trend began to take place where now counties, you know, were red and blue and now cities were red and blue. Right. And you wouldn't have to step too far out of your area to be in, for lack of a, letter, for lack of a better term, foreign territory you know, in, into that other place. And so that, that whether it be combative or that populist desire to, you know, look out for myself because, you know, we're part of that downtrodden and the other, of whatever, whatever color they are, red or blue, that's the opposition. And it would seem like we've just been rolling more deeply into this whole polarizing um, schema. 
and and as you describe where you live and then where you were driving to to serve in a parish, it just seems like yeah, you were going through that. You're trans. You're going through these different zones. How did how did that feel as far as your pastoral identity? Because I imagine you wake up in one place and you're feeling perhaps one way about your community and your surroundings and your family and neighbors, and you go to another community and you ha- may have a different sense of how you are received or you know, what, what, it, what your pastoral challenges or goals need to be in that other community. What, what was that like? Yeah. I mean, um, it's been about a, only about a week and a half. So I'm still like sorting okay. through a lot of the, the feelings. Um, a word that I was using a lot was sort of this sense of bifurcation where, you know, it was, um, two separate lives in some ways that were both very important to me, you know, in my Mm -hmm. congregation and the relationships I had there. And then also at home in my neighborhood with my family. Um, and also I'll say too, you know, I think there's a dual truth here. And on one hand, the truth is that we make much more of, um, this separation than might be necessary. Um, I had, you know, plenty of folks in my congregation who they did the opposite commute. They drove into Mm. the cities for their jobs, you know, whether it was one of my members who was a crane operator, or there's a couple of young moms who work in dental offices. Um, You know, there's plenty of people who were doing kind of the opposite thing. I think it was maybe a bit more pronounced for me just because the role as pastor is such a personal one with relationships. So it was... um, Mm -hmm that sense of not just going for a job, but I really wanted to embed in the community as much as I could. Uh, and it was such, I, th- I felt like it was really important. And I think my congregation, a lot of people in that way, you know, ended up feeling the same way too. I had some conversations with different leaders about this, of how we really learned from each other in this time, you know, and there were some preconceptions that maybe we both had about city life or rural life that were, um, Mm. that were changed by being in relationship with each other. And as you say, I mean, I think that happens fewer and further between. Um, But I had, I was telling you before we started recording, I had this interesting experience um, last week where uh, the journalism teacher at the, our local high school um, knew that I had, you know, come out of this pastoral job and, I have a short call teaching license in Minnesota. Um, so she said, can you fill in for a couple of days? And so I, I was teaching at the high school and one of the students um, Googled me and saw that I was a pastor and that I had written this book, Red State Christians. And her assumption was that I was, you know, a far right wing um, fundamentalist Christian. And so she just kind of freaked out and was like, <laughs> trying to sort of, she wrote this story about, you know, a gay student and his boyfriend who had premarital sex. And I think she thought that I was going to have this big reaction to it. And of course I, you know, I didn't, I'm, I'm affirming and accepting of LGBTQ people. I think, you know, that God has a huge heart for everybody. And that's, you know, not part of my faith background. Um, but it was such an interesting experience for me. And I wanted to really take time to think about that experience because but she was trying to find your buttons to push, assuming <laughs> you were this other character. Yeah, it was so. Um, and then the next time I was in that class, she, she like kind of apologized to me a little bit, you know, she, there's some other behavioral issues. 
<laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to like, remember what that felt like because, yeah. um, it, it didn't, I I've so often been in spaces that are right leaning or very conservative. Um, and so I'm very used to people like thinking that I'm this huge liberal <laughs> or like thinking certain things about my political affiliation from that perspective. Um, right. And I have not often been in the other place where people have criticized me for thinking that I'm too conservative or too right-leaning. And to be sort of painted in a way that doesn't accurately reflect who you are is, a, is really not a good feeling. And it really uh, is a deterrent to relationships. It's a deterrent to growth. And so it just made me think a little bit about, um, you know, that maybe for people in my congregation, you know, assuming that here's this, you know, maybe a pastor who's quote unquote liberal coming from the city. What does she think about us? Does she have these? And I I wanted to be sensitive to that because I think, um, you know, having experienced it myself and for like the first time from that direction, it made me realize that it, to, to make assumptions about one another and to, um, kind of close yourself off because what you think somebody else believes is just something that's really harming our country right now, I think, especially within, within Christianity too. I mean, it made me really sad as a Christian too, that, that, that was her first response to hearing that I was a Christian was thinking of what I didn't like about people. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. I think I, I do, at least in the circles I travel, there's a lot of pastors who, um, feel like, they keep on having to say, well, I'm not that kind of mm-hmm. <laughs> Christian. Mm-hmm. And the kind that they're referring to is this um, assumption of some kind of fundamentalist. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's, it, it, it sounds as if that, that um, experience with the student, I want to want to go to um, a section in the book in the preface where you describe kind of almost a, I don't know if it's a prophetic or a pastoral kind of response you were having as you were in the in the community where you were serving. But it seems like this experience with this student being on the other side is actually part of this, uh, uh, shed some light on this passage. So at the, in the preface, uh, and this is after, after the election has passed, the, uh, the 2020 election is, 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 is over. And um, I'm just going to read a few excerpts from parts of this preface. And then I'm going to ask you to read Uh, a paragraph there on page uh, XXV. But you, um, you, you uh, make a request, uh, as you say, of the Christians I loved in this uh, little Midwestern church. I asked them if now, two months post-election, maybe they'd consider taking down those Trump flags. I asked them, maybe they could see what those flags had come to represent. Um, Honestly, I didn't think that was too much to ask. No one said much to me that Sunday <laughs> is something you write, you know, uh, in reference to that. Full disclosure, when you talk COVID, you know, so there yeah, were right. That's right. You, but yeah, <laughs> you probably watch their reactions over Zoom. I'm guessing, sure. like, yeah, sure. are they are they hearing me here? Yeah. But then you describe um, pulling up to a pump, a gas pump, and then f- actually feeling fear. Um, and you mentioned. Um, I knew almost everyone and almost everyone was related across the street from me, the police station where I had the chief's 
cell phone number, but I, I tasted the bleak metallic tang of fear. I just had the audacity, me, a woman, a pastor of all things, to suggest to these people that they needed to smash their idols, tear down their objects in which they'd placed their faith. They wouldn't like it. They'd be mad. They had guns. <laughs> and then um, kind of following that conversation, and there's other things you may want to add, if you would read that paragraph where it says, four years later, my earnest and open heart sure. has been torn in two. Uh, four years later, my earnest and open heart has been torn in two. Bright red, make America great again. Again, signs are popping up all over my church's little town. Two families whose homes I'd visited earlier that year left the church without telling me. They, le they left for male pastors in a more conservative denomination, saying they just didn't connect with me and the politics were always an undertone of discontent. No matter how many times I prayed for military members and law enforcement officers and veterans, it didn't matter. I prayed too much for racial justice. I'd had the audacity to talk about the Trump signs two months after the election. I'd stepped out of my prescribed place, so there was no longer room for mutual understanding or shared peace. your head why do you make your bed among the thorns oh give me your poor in need give me your restless weak bring your oppressed to me and let's make a home Cause freedom has a sound And it drowns injustice out When we lift our voice above the crowd Yeah, freedom has a sound My friend or foe Am I death or home? Am I the image of the one I claim? Because talk is cheap It's politicians speak It's only noise if we don't change the game, yeah. Cause freedom has a sound, and it drowns injustice out. When we lift our voice above the crowd, yeah. That's a good song. I like that. How'd you find um, it? 
oh, just looking around for songs about injustice. And <laughs> <laughs> what's your what's your what does uh, your playlist name mean? No, um, so so I put that together when I was listening to a podcast called Swag. It's uh, straight oh, white straight. American Jesus. Gotcha. That's so right. it's like no straight white American Jesus. So that's right. I think you told me that once. Yeah, and I keep finding songs to add on to there. Um, nice. And uh, what one one problem is if I set my um, Spotify settings to exclude um, any kind of swearing, I end up losing most of the punk music on there. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So that's depending true. on your settings, if you if I you know if you if you hit the link where we share our uh, the, this. Um, this uh, Spotify <laughs> site, you know, you, you might not get everything. You might not get the whole picture. That's right. <laughs> All right. So, hey, so, uh, so, yeah. And I, I'm looking forward to picking up on that second, uh, second uh, <laughs> portion of it. Cause it ends, you know, it's like, ah, oh, there's more to say. So we'll, we'll hear. We got a part two. Our next got recording. Two. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Much more to come from Angela Decker. And thank you, Angela. All right. What do we got? What's some fourth quarter stuff we can talk about? Well, you know, I I have been so overwhelmed, really, with trying to get into a new schedule. Yeah, you got um, track going it, on, spring track. Yeah, winter track is uh, three days a week, few hours winter, a winter day. Track. And then, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it, it took me, you know, 10 hours a week kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, I completely, I, it, it's not like this is a new thing. <laughs> you do it every it's year. Like I, com- I completely forgot that, oh, when track season starts, the spring track season, that means I'm doing this 20, 30 hours a week. Ooh-wee. And it's like, oh, gee, uh, I just, I've run out of time. Um, yeah. And it it keeps, keeps me uh, moving fast. Fortunately, I have one class that ends this evening, one of my short courses. Oh, nice. And so that'll open up a little bit of time. But I think, you know what I find as an old man, I mean, you're a young guy, you can, you can <laughs> live it up for a while. But <laughs> I had always had this ability that, okay, I'm going to work during the day, come home, fix supper, or be at home and fix supper as the case may be. Right. And then after food's put away, dishes are clean, then I go back to the office and I can work for another hour or two. Oof. I can't do that. Once I'm once supper's done, I'm done. You're done. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I can I can just kind of, you know, plant myself on the couch. That's that's it. And that's about it. And <laughs> I just like I just don't have the stamina to like, oh, hey, what? I can't do an 80 hour week right now. Ugh, Who so, can though, really? Yeah. But I, I just I definitely feel like I've hit my hit my uh, limit on that. Yeah. But. So for that reason, I haven't watched any sports at all. I do understand that there's some kind of basketball tournament starting this weekend. Big thing, big um, thing, March Madness. You know, and, and and I'm looking at my backyard and finally the snow stopped. <laughs> That's right. You guys were on, it was in a record number of days in a yeah, row. We had snow, a record right? number of days in a row for snowfall. Whew. And it, it wasn't in January or February or back in December. It was in March. Uh, and so we had, I think, 13 <laughs> or 14 days in a row where we had snowfall. Oh, wasn't a crazy. lot, but it was enough to like, oh, get over it. Come on. Please, you know. we're done. <laughs> but, but now all the snow's melting. I'm looking at my yard and it's ugly. <laughs> it's I know. Like, I hate oh, that. Yeah, that's that rough. 
it's like oh no we've got to start working in the yard <sighs> yeah where's the time going to come from it's just not have to hire a landscaper <laughs> oh, no <clears throat> don't you got some grandkids oh you know they're not old enough yet are they they're not old enough they're six <laughs> and three they, if i let them loose with a lawnmower and some shovels who knows what would happen <laughs> might be entertaining you could, so. who knows what it could produce though well hey you know your kids are perfect age actually mm-hmm. yeah i'll send them down to you Send them on down. <laughs> yeah you got spring break coming up that's what you can yeah do. we do got spring break that's right spring break coming up although my parents are coming here so oh really All we right. won't be traveling away they'll be coming here yes got it yep 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 although uh i may be going to boise sometime soon for northwest leadership institute yeah you so. got your yeah you got those meetings coming up oh, you know if i haven't already missed them <laughs> <laughs> oh you're on top of things too <laughs> i'm not i'm uh, all over the place oh yes no yeah march so i haven't watched a lot of college basketball either so i'm not entirely sure i know boise state made it in right See, you know more than i do and i'm only <laughs> what 15 minutes away from them yeah you know? they made it in and they are i think are they a are, 15 no they're higher than that really yeah, pretty sure. Let me go double check. March Madness bracket 2023. Let's see. Let's take a look. I'm pretty sure they're higher than that. I mean, one of the few things I did while you're looking that up, one of the few things that I heard that was surprising is UNC is, is not in the tournament. Yeah, they didn't make it. They were preseason number one and yeah. they didn't even make it, which is the first time in history that's happened. Okay, I found it. Here it is. Yeah. What's are you playing something? Oh, no, it's on my it's on my end. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's what I know. This is the here it is. They're much higher. Number 10. Oh my gosh. So they would be playing number seven Northwestern. Uh nice. on okay, Thursday. That's a, so yeah, that's a nicer matchup. So technically, some games start today, right? I mean, there's they, they have this new well, last they have few this years, new so. level. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so they're not calling it, uh, you know, not not the what is it? Yeah, the not it's not the ninety six or the eighty two or whatever it is. But there's mm-hmm. all these different play ins yet for that yeah. outside. So there's technically um, two number sixteens, two number elevens, right? Two, you know, yeah, basically is how that works. <laughs> and that's, yep. Yeah, and so I, the first in the, four. In the years, that's what it's called. The first four. Okay. In the, the years past, four. I've I've like scheduled my weekend so I could kind of plant myself in front of the TV. Yeah. And I don't know if that's my plan can, this week or you not. You can't do it's it like, now, can you? I don't know if I can. Can I grade essays while I'm watching Oof. March Madness? I don't know. Just have it going on in the background, you know. Yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> the thing is, those games. I mean, I'm always, I'm always for the underdog. That's just my yeah, nature. Me too. <laughs> and you know, when some of those, you know, it's usually not the 16s, but the, you know, 13, 14, 15 seeds make a run. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty exciting to watch. I love that. So I, I like watching that, and I also want, to, I also want the the um, the Jayhawks to go all the way. Always. Ah, so I'm always for the that. underdogs mainly until they come up. If there was a super underdog up against uh, Kansas, I would probably pull for the underdog. There you go. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's see. What is Kansas? Uh, They've got to be up. They're always up there. So, yeah. Well, that they had, I mean, their coach went to the hospital last week with uh, heart issues. So I think, you know, that, that could be a distraction or it could be that motivation, you know, go win one for the Gipper kind of thing. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking will happen. It's got to. 
Uh, they are, where are they at here? Kansas. Oh, yeah, they're number three. So they'll be playing okay. number four. Uh, I'm sorry, number 14, Montana State. Wow. Wow. That's right. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, that was that was a good one to see because I think, I think there might have been another Big Sky Conference team that made it in as well. I don't know. Yeah. If... Uh, let's see. Uh, and let's see. Arizona State, Nevada, uh, Kent State, Indiana, Montana State. Oh, I'm always surprised when Grand Canyon makes it in. Oh, were they in there? All right. And Grand Canyon's in number 14. Uh, now they're kind of a young university, right? And aren't they a one of those well, weird? They've been, around for, online... they've been around for a long time. Oh, no, they shifted to be like a, a big time online school, right? Isn't that what it is? Right. Or something? Yeah. yeah. So what what they they're kind of an interesting one that they um so there is they were originally, I believe, a Southern Baptist or at least a yeah. Baptist mm-hmm. uh, private community college. They were just right? a two-year school. And then they went four year and yeah. then they bought their school and turned it into a private proprietary college. Yeah. Kind of like DeVry or those other yeah, kind of schools, but they maintained the full curriculum and they had great athletic programs too. Yeah. Uh, when I was growing I was... up, Grand, uh, Grand Canyon was, would be, you know, always winning the junior, um, the junior college national championship in baseball. They were just really That's good. Cool. Yep. And then they became, then, then they got into the NCAA as a private school or a proprietary school, which they were the first one to do so. And then That's they got into D1 sports with, I think, baseball and, and basketball. Yep. 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 And they still have that. They, they still are a Christian school. Right. Um, Somehow and maintained that. Yeah. Like Oral Roberts, who's in there. Uh, yeah, that's right. Oral Roberts is in there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to think about them. Liberty, Oral Roberts. Liberty's not in, but Oral Roberts is in. And in fact, they're number 12 playing Duke. Yeah. And I think it, I'm trying to think if there are any other big sky conference schools. I'm looking, in... I'm trying to find, I'm not. I don't think there oh, are. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I led you wrong. Kansas is number one in their bracket. And they're right. playing, they're playing Howard. Howard. So. Yeah, there you go. Big Sky. Is Eastern Washington in there? Are they? Let me look. Eastern? No, they are not. Uh, okay, because they had a great they had a great season. Yep. Must have just fallen short. College of Charleston's oh. in there. San Diego State. Oh, uh, here's the one that's kind of surprised. The highest ranked or this is the highest that this team has ever been ranked because they're not really known for basketball. Alabama, number one in there. That's right. They're coming yeah. in strong. Yeah. Yep. 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 So, so yeah, that'll be Houston. That'll take up some time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. I'm trying to find oh, Colgate. Colgate, number 15. There's They sometimes, I, they make the, the, the March Madness every now and then. Yeah. That, and that name just always, I can't just get, I just think so toothpaste. toothpaste. Yep. <laughs> Princeton's in again. I love it when Princeton's in. They, what I uh, really like about the schools like probably Colgate, Princeton, Montana. Yeah. I mean, these are schools where you don't have the one and done athletes. That's right. And sometimes even if even if they don't make a huge run in the in the in the in the tournament, you end up seeing the fact that these people know each other yep. and they know how to you know play with each other. As a team. Yep. Yeah. And it's just not, you know, feeding it to the star. That's right. They're, that's fun. Princeton and Princeton's always been like, I can't, I don't think the guy is still there. Right. But there was a, 
legendary coach there, you know, for what he, he invented an offense, the Princeton offense. Okay. And, um, was there forever, but you know, because it's such a, it probably often, I think the story is he often had the opportunities to go, you know, somewhere else and, uh, always stuck, stay there with him. And, you know, Princeton seems like a decent place to stay. I don't know if you're going to be in Jersey. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good spot to be in Jersey. Mm-hmm. Anyway, anyway. Yeah. So I think that's going to kind of take up some of the, uh, focus if I have some time. Or I may end up watching the movie Women Talking. Hey, I still got to see that too. And uh, Ted Lasso has started the new season. <laughs> Don't talk to me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to catch up on that. Mm-hmm. So, and and while my brain's like on kind of mush in the evening. So we've been watching uh, The Mandalorian. New oh, season, nice. I love it. That's which nice. left me with this really... Uh, profound question that i put on twitter and nobody's responded with a with an answer i'm really concerned about mandalorian hygiene because if you're (laughs) never allowed to take off your helmet what happens to your skin it's gotta be gross and what was your hair looking like it's Mm -hmm. i mean i i have a feeling that if a mandalorian kept their helmet on their entire life as they're supposed to by their vows when they took off their helmet they would look like Anakin does when he takes off the Darth Vader mask. Yeah. Just that, a moldy mess with no hair. Or isn't there the deal like they used to do um, in certain cultures, they do binding of certain body parts. Yeah. Yeah. When you take it off, it's like it falls apart. Like, doesn't it like fall apart? Cause it's like, it's just taking I, that shape or whatever. I, yeah. So I, I'm just really kind of curious how functionally that really works. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, here. Okay. The guy, the, the Princeton coach I was talking about, he was there from 75 to 97. So 22 wow. years, Pete Carroll is his name. Uh, uh. <laughs> and um, he's noted for, he's the only division one coach to record over 500 wins without a single athletic scholarship to give. Oh my gosh. The, yeah, yeah. So that's what he's Yeah, Cause those in, I, in Ivy leagues offense. don't give athletic scholarships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's, That's why he's a cool. and he invented that he has a, it's called the Princeton offense. <laughs> and they right. actually used it in the NBA a little bit. So oh, does everybody have their own offense? I wonder. <laughs> I don't know. And only the Princeton offense is the one that people remember. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, is there a Duke offense or a, Ooh. there's gotta be. I got, yeah, but it might be, I have a different name. Cause it may be to, you know, specifically to coach K maybe it's like, coach k's offense or something you know something like that i don't know so here we are we've we've spoken through all our totality of uh hey. madness knowledge we'll have to learn some stuff in the weeks to come <laughs> we so. will be and we'll learn a lot more about some players and whatnot so all right hey cool all right well we're coming up to our two minute warning what do you got for two minute warning what i, oh, I got yeah pull up the notes. so i was i was reading the bible i do that once in a while hey Sweet. And, and, and for some reason, I, my mind just got connected to this wonderfully obscure Bible verse in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 4. Even a live dog is better than a dead lion. Huh. So what's that mean? You got a minute. <laughs> well, I guess it just means there's, my instant thought is the dog is still alive, so there's still more you know, for it to do, accomplish, learn, grow, uh, 
I guess <laughs> the dead lion, <laughs> so, as powerful and mighty as the lion was when it was live, it cannot do anything more. There's no further uh, territory for it to whatever claim or, you know, I suppose uh, food to eat, uh, lionesses to, you know, partner with whatever. There's no more left. There's no hope. True. True. Yeah, there is life. And that's that's a good thing. <laughs> I think I think what, what gets me in this this verse more than anything is the word even in front of a dog <laughs> even a live dog as a, as opposed to like a dead, you know, a dead dog <laughs> but i mean that that means the dogs are not really well respected uh, in, in Solomon's not. court you know i wonder if they were just not that domesticated at the time it's like saying have... even a, it's like even a jerk you know is is better than a you know a dead lion even a living moron is better yeah. than a dead fool or a wise sage, I guess. <laughs> Something like that. A dead a dead sage. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's just it made it made me think of how dogs were of um low, you know, they were they were poorly poorly thought of back then. Mongrel smuts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> it makes sense. You were focused on that boy, they must not have thought very highly of dogs. Yeah. <laughs> and then every, every day, my son sends me pictures of dogs that need adopting it from the Aww. from the humane society or yeah. an animal rescue shelter, and it's trying to he keeps trying to get us to to get another dog, and so like, I mean, yeah, it's like, nah, probably not going to happen too soon. Not not now. <laughs> yeah, it, it the the uh, the live dog that enters our house uh, will have to be at my wife's um, request. Yeah. As soon so as she says a... yes, I'm really I'm willing to have a second dog. Would you get a big dog or a little dog, or a medium yep. sized dog? Yep, probably <laughs> any, any one of them. So one of the dogs that uh, he sent me a picture of was a mastiff. Oh boy, a, mast- a mastiff puppy. Yeah, this little thing with big old wrinkly skin just kind of hanging get, off its face. Huge. They get big. Wait to grow into. Oh, they do get big. <laughs> so, but yeah, not likely anytime soon. Mm. Okay. Fair enough. All right. All right. Cool. Well, that that's our that's our episode, and that's it. All right, everybody, come back next week for part two of Angela Denker. And yes. who knows what I do? We'll have a little more meat to talk about for the March Madness because some things will have happened. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if there's going to be any Christian nationalist themes in March Madness. Oh, you know, uh, on one uh, A today on NBR, the big topic of discussion was how. Um, Sports gambling has insidiously entered into oh, yeah. the world of college. I mean, it's always been there, obviously, because you could always bet wherever it's legal on college games. But they mean now, because it's legal pretty much everywhere, that now they can advertise at these games and sponsor colleges. And, they're, and they are. And they are among the top five sponsorships for some college programs. Well, I'm I'm waiting to see how many college <laughs> athletes are going to be the spokespersons for you know using their NIL. Right, uh, freedoms to advertise for betting on a game. Mm-hmm. Then what do you do? I mean, yep. It it seems like there that could be some problems. Kind of like it's just opening. It's like uh, lots Pete of Rosa, Pete Rosifying. Uh, yeah, on, I mean uh, college sports, and not only yeah. that, but they say because uh, you know, so now like they're going to be sponsoring. You know, obviously advertisements around the arenas. But maybe even renaming arenas, you know, there's a the potential for that to these sporting things. And so kids on college campuses will be around it a lot 
and uh, there it's a vulnerable age for for gambling oh, yeah. always has been so yeah uh, boy oh boy it's a wonderful world <laughs> yeah <laughs> actually on there and i forget who they said but they said a student athlete actually wrote a letter to the ncaa you know the governing uh, body the uh some of the uh, people in it the chair and all that the director asking please you know reconsider uh using you know these because he's had in his family a history of gambling addiction you know that uh just wrecked their family so yeah well yeah. you know the one thing is you know all those college students are there to get an education right. to broaden their their minds and you know, their experiences and i'm sure that they'll make wise choices <laughs> oh yeah I mean, oh, yes, I only I'm made sure. wise choices when I was in college. Oh, pure, purely wisdom. <laughs> All right. All right. See you next week. Bye. <laughs> On that happy note of gambling. Yeah, really. Yeah. College sports. We'll see you later. All right. <laughs>